crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Brent Noctegal, coming to you today from Jerusalem, Israel, where we are celebrating the 52nd anniversary of the liberating of Jerusalem from the Jordanians during the Six-Day War back in 1967. On the second half of today's show, we're going to go through, or actually I'm not going through, uh, I'm going to play a recording for you from Christopher Reams about some of the miracles that took place in the Six-Day War to allow Israel to conquer Jerusalem, and then also the other territories of the Sinai, Golan Heights, and uh, more of uh, Judea and Samaria as well. And so please stay around for that. I think it's really interesting to look back at that history and see God's hand in delivering the Jews uh, from the invading uh, Arab armies and so that they would be able to uh, specifically take over Jerusalem and expand their territory. So that'll be in the second half of today's show. Before I get to that, though, there are a couple of news stories I want to get to, uh, a couple of prophetically significant news stories related to the Middle East, the region. Um, And before I get that, just some news related to Watch Jerusalem itself. Over the weekend, it was announced that we are going to start producing a new print magazine. This will be a hard copy. I think it's about 32 pages, something like that, that we'll produce six times per year. Like WatchJerusalem.co.il, it'll feature biblical history, biblical archaeology, and also prophetically significant news relating to Jerusalem, Israel, and the Middle East. It also gives us an awesome opportunity to be more creative and engaging in some of the visual displays that we'll have um, inside that magazine that you can get, and hopefully uh, some of these infographics that we have related to biblically significant artifacts that have been discovered, kind of like a fact sheet or a a visual fact sheet that you can maybe post or put on your wall or something like that um, inside that magazine. So this is going to be something that you can get for free. Uh, Shortly, we're going to have the ad advertisement uh, relating to the print magazine if you want to sign up to receive your copy on Watch Jerusalem. You can also get ahead of the game if you like and um, just email letters at watchjerusalem.co.il with your address if you're here in Israel uh, and we'll we'll, uh, put you down to receive the first copy which should be coming out sometime around September, late August or September. Again, this is going to come out six times per year and it will be a hard copy free magazine related to biblical archaeology and news that you can receive uh, free of charge. And so that's that's exciting. I've, I've got to start writing. Uh, there were assignments that came out this week related to that. We got received that from the managing editor, uh, Mr. Brad McDonald. He sent out a memo, internal memo, just detailing the articles that are going to be in the first uh, first edition, and I'll be writing one about um, Dr. Elot Mazar and, and her fascination, as well as her grandfather's fascination with King David, the roots of that, and um, what she's discovered related to King David's time. So again, an exciting step forward for, for our work here uh, in Israel, providing... Um, Israelis with a, 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 another, well, a specific um, magazine related to biblical archaeology and prophetic news. So you can look forward to that again. Just a few comments now 
on last week's program. It was by Mr. Christopher Reams. It was about dinosaurs. It was about the creation, uh, the first few verses of the book of Genesis. I Go back and listen to that um, because it's really interesting and, and um, details what we believe about um, those first initial verses of the Bible and how that does relate to science and archaeology. There's no contradiction there in speaking of the age of the earth or the age of the animals or anything like that. And so that quick 30-minute program can bring you up to speed about the what archaeology says and what the Bible actually says about the Genesis um, of man on this earth. A couple of comments here. One says this, Hello, Mr. Reams. May I express my appreciation for an extremely interesting and obviously well-researched lecture. Good to fit so much information in a short span for those who whose interest span is short. <laughs> I'm a real fan of Watch Jerusalem, trying to learn as much as I can as fast as I can. One more said, Christopher Reams, a most excellent program, a lot of information in just the first two or three verses of the Bible. Thank you very much. There are others that came in as well. Again, if you would like to um, listen to that program, I can put a link in the show notes to this show, or you can just go back to last week's program. One other bit of, of just archaeological news, the Shiloh excavations, tell Shiloh excavations are going on right now. And uh, the expedition is putting out a series of videos quite rapidly every day or, to, or so about those excavations. It, they're, they're, quite, they're quite interesting. Uh, if you want to learn about archaeological procedure, what they're discovering at Tel Shiloh, uh, these, these videos are nice and small. They're about 10 minutes, I guess, or a bit under that. So they're, they're bite-sized uh, and um, they're coming out real time, which is wonderful to see. And uh, they might be a little bit nerdy in some cases, but I think that it, it's quite helpful if you want to learn this information about archaeology and be as close as you can get in many ways if you aren't in this nation uh, to, uh, to these archaeological discoveries related to Shiloh. And again, I'll leave a link for those uh, shows from YouTube that you can access for free uh, from the expedition of Tel Shiloh. Just a couple of news events I'd like to cover. Firstly, um, you might have seen this, and that is that Israel has uh, um, hit back at Syria or in, inside Syria after there was rocket fire uh, coming into Israel on Saturday. And this article is from Haaretz. I just want to read through this so you get some context. It's entitled, Israel Strikes Syria foreign Following Rocket Fire, 10 Syrian-Iranian Hezbollah Militants Said Killed. The article starts off this way. The Israeli army confirmed Sunday that it had struck a number of military targets in Syria overnight, Saturday, after two rockets were fired toward the Golan Heights. Syrian state media reported that three Syrian soldiers were killed and seven were wounded in the strike, while the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights reported that 10 were killed, seven of which were Iranian and Hezbollah militants. Another outlet said that there were Syrians that were killed, but basically there were obviously many that were killed uh, from Israel's retaliation, something that we have seen step up over the past two years. Israel has its red lines in Syria, and they will not allow Iran to set up a beachhead there to, be, to strike Israel. And every single time there is uh, some rocket fire or something like that that comes into Israeli territory, Israel uses that opportunity to, to take out a number of targets that they've already predetermined that they know are Iranian specifically. That's who they're going after. And they have received from the Russians, who are also involved in Syria, a green light to do that. 
The Russians aren't interfering. The Russians have their defense, the, the anti-aircraft defense systems there. Uh, they could stop a lot of these um, retrib- retributive attacks uh, by Israel, but they don't. Because Israel, again, is attacking the Iranians there, which Russia, it seems, doesn't have to have a big problem with. This article continues, Israel said its air force struck a number of targets, including two artillery batteries, a number of observation posts near the border, and an air defense battery. And so, again, um, this this shows that Israel is willing to strike back in Syria uh, to the Iranian entrenchment there, and, and Iran trying to use this domain that they have... Um, uh, that they are now fully involved in because uh, the Syrian regime needed their help to preserve itself. And so Iran was called in and Iran decided, especially this is going back now, I guess a year and a half ago, after the successful battle in, in Aleppo, which saw Iranian forces, Quds force, uh, thousands of them, tens of thousands of forces allied to the Iranians and even directed by the Iranians, wipe out the last major stronghold of the rebels, apart from Idlib province, as we'll get to in a bit. Um, But at that point, since the Syrian regime was largely preserved, Iran had a choice. Iran could have at that moment decided to get out, to go back, to tell its militias, Hezbollah back to Lebanon, uh, the Fatih uh, Yemen Brigade or something like that, the Afghanis go back to Afghanistan, the Iraqis go back to Iraq. But instead... They kept a lot of their forces there because they didn't just want to preserve the Syrian regime. They wanted to then be there on the ground inside Syria to ensure that it could use that territory to attack Israel. And since that time, Israel is obviously aware of this plan. Israel has stepped up its attacks against the Iranians. It's stepped up its conversations with the Americans and with the Russians to ensure that Iran does get out of Syria I believe it is actually earlier this month. Yeah, we have uh, a very special uh, meeting that's going to take place here in Jerusalem between uh, the uh, the advisor to Mr. Trump, Mr. John Bolton, the Russian head of security, and the Israelis are all going to get together and talk about Syria. And they're going to be talking about how to get the Iranians out. Now, 90% of what you read about Syria, it doesn't even mention this fracturing relationship between the Russians and the Iranians, but it's there. It's visible. They're actually fighting against each other occasionally. Back in April, there were Russian forces that were fighting against Iranian forces inside Syria because the Russians don't actually want the Iranians there. Every single time the Iranians attack the Israelis, Israeli comes back and fires against the Iranians, and it perpetuates this war. A war that Russia does not want it to perpetuate. They want to settle and consolidate on its gains, ensuring the survival of the the uh, regime there, which is an ally in the Middle East for Russia. Again, before the Syrian civil war, back in 2015, when Russia was invited there, the Russians were nobody, nowhere to be seen in the Middle East, and they were invited to uh, by the Iranians uh, because the Syrian regime looked to fall. Their air power was needed. And they have come in, obviously, because they want to get something out of it. They want to, one, ensure that they can have access to their Mediterranean bases there. They really do. It's extremely important if Turkey does decide to close the Bosporus or the Dardanelles on the Russian fleet uh, that is in the Black Sea. uh, Russia does need a warm water port. 
and they have that off the coast of Syria. That's important to them. Also important to the Russians is this reconstruction effort. There's going to be a lot of money to throw around at Russian companies that will be funded by the Europeans or perhaps even the, the Americans uh, to rebuild Syria. And so Russia wants a piece of that pie. But every time that the Iranians attack and the Israelis respond, nobody is going to be starting to donate money for the restoration of Syria. And so the Russians are getting extremely upset with the Iranians. They want the Iranians out. So does Israel. So does the United States. So does even a lot of nations in Europe. This one final story I want to cover here is one that uh, I think it was, yeah, this is Kurdistan 24, though it's been reported also in Spiegel. It's also been reported in the Telegraph. But I think that this article from the Kurdish perspective uh, does offer um, the, the best detail. The Kurds, obviously, they are they live here in this, this border region between Turkey, uh, northern Iraq, northwest, northeast Syria, and even in in a northern Iran, so you have the Kurds there. I think there are about twenty five or thirty million people that are in these different nations. They have a semi autonomous state in Iraq. They want to have that same type of thing in Syria, in the northwest. They're scared not of the Syrian regime necessarily. They're scared mainly of Turkey because Turkey has its own problems with the Kurds that are inside their borders, and so they don't. Turkey does not want to see an autonomous uh, Kurdish territory inside Syria because it would foment unrest inside Turkey as they see it. And so the Kurds are worried about that. The Kurds have also been the number one fighting force uh, on the ground for the United States in the United States' war against the Islamic State. United States forces are there on the ground in Syria. The United States has provided a lot of the air power, but the United States wants to get out. And so when Mr. Trump made this decision that he wants to pull the troops out of Syria, the people that were most worried were the Kurds. That have been spilling their blood to fight against the Islamic State as part of the United States coalition. And that Mr. Trump wanted to get out and the Kurds are saying, hey, what's going to happen to us? If you leave, if you're no longer embedded with us, meaning your soldiers, your trainers along with us, the, the Turks are going to take us out. And we might have to start fighting against Turkey now instead of fighting against the remnants of the Islamic State. And so that's why the United States is still there in eastern Syria. But the United States wants to leave. And who is going to replace the United States? Well, over the weekend, we got some indication that it looks to be Germany. Germany that wants in, that wants to replace the United States at first, it seems, uh, with the air support against the Islamic State, protecting the Kurds. Of course, uh, the, Germany has been a part. They've had some reconnaissance flights and things like that. Uh, they've been training the Kurds, the Peshmerga in northern Iraq, for the fight against the Islamic State. But now they're going to get more involved. Of course, this is pending approval in the, in the Bundestag as well. This has to go through the German parliament. And yet the foreign minister said that he supports what the U.S. has done and... Germany's ready to, to take up the slack in Syria. Now, this is extremely prof uh, prophetic, extremely prophetic, because Bible prophecy says two things regarding the future of Syria. One, Iran will be out. Iran will be out. It will no longer hold sway over the Assad regime. It will be out. That is number one that Bible prophecy says. It also says that a German-led Europe will be in.
will replace Iran as the dominant actor inside Syria. And here we have Germany, belatedly, here we are nine or eight years after the Syrian civil war began. And finally, it seems, Germany is willing to pick up the slack. At first, this is not going to be of ground forces, as they say. But who knows where it's going to go uh, from here. So just this article, it, it is entitled, Germany Backs U.S. Plans for Safe Zone in Syria. Okay, so this is the, the, big, uh, the big debate now is, is how we're going to protect the Kurds from the Turks and how we're going to protect some of the, the legitimate uh, dissidents against the Syrian regime if the Syrian regime is in control. Well, we need some safe zones. We need some safe zones that are, got, that are protected by not Turkey, not the Assad regime, not the Russians, somebody from the outside. The United States wants to set up these safe zones. They're also very important to Europe because if there is more fighting in Syria, these safe zones are needed to ensure that Syrian refugees don't flow into Europe again. They can go to one of these safe zones. And so Germany is backing such a U.S. plan. Quoting now from Kurdistan 24, and I'll leave a link for this article in the show notes. Germany confirmed on Friday that it supports the U.S. plan to establish a security zone in northeastern Syria along the Turkish border to help maintain stability there after the drawdown of U.S. forces, which have been working with the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF, to defeat the so-called Islamic State. So this is the territory, northeastern Syria, and U.S. and Germany are of one mind that the need for a safe zone exists. Quote, we strongly welcome, we very much welcome the fact that the United States has decided to continue its presence on the ground in northeastern Syria, German Foreign Minister Heiko Maas said in a joint appearance with U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in Berlin. I think that was Friday afternoon. Then he continued, quote, the Americans may have changed the way in which they are present and the size in which they are present, but we support them. So... This area of eastern Syria is important because eastern Syria separates Syria from Iraq and the next country over. And Bible prophecy based on uh, this, and I'm going to just refer you to an article that you can get all the, the scriptural backing for what I'm saying um, later. And you, I really do recommend, I'm not even going to go through it because I want you to get this article and read it. It's entitled, How the Syrian Crisis Will End. It was written all the way back in 2012, just after the Syrian civil war or crisis began. And it was written by our editor-in-chief, and it's based on numerous prophecies and what he was saying in there is that by the end of this uh, by the end of this war Iran is not going to be a factor inside Syria anymore and Germany will be a factor and here we are 8 years into it and that is what we're starting to see and eastern Syria again separates Syria from Iraq we know from based on bible prophecy that Iraq is going to stay with Iran whereas Syria is going to uh, fall out of Iran's sway. And so eastern Syria is a critical territory. It's a critical place to have troops. U.S. forces are there right now, largely preventing uh, the, the Iranians from controlling this territory across Iraq and into Syria. And it looks like the Ger Germany is going to have more of a presence there. Mass confirmed, back to this article, that Germany had been in discussions with the U.S. in the past weeks and months. That's so interesting. They've been talking about this for weeks and months about the future of Syria, including the region east of the Euphrates. 
which has been liberated from the Islamic State. Remember, the Islamic State, what is one of its goals? To break down this border, this make-believe European border as they see it, just coming off uh, during and just after the First World War by Sykes-Pico. Here, this border between Syria and Iraq. The Islamic State wants to get rid of that. They they dance on the borders. Uh, they they dance on the... the uh, you, there was footage of them, uh, this border between the two, and you had the big signs that were being trampled on by Islamic State fighters. This was at the very beginning of the Islamic State uprising. They wanted to destroy this border. And so you had the U.S. and the coalition forces come in to this border region and defeat the Islamic State. Okay, now who's going to fill the vacuum? Well, Iran wants to fill the vacuum. And Iran is filling the vacuum. But the one stopping, the one factor that's stopping that right now is the SDF, or these Kurdish fighters, and the United States that are there still in eastern Syria. And this is where Germany wants to get involved. So that when it does, it can cut off Iran's access to Syria. Continuing from this article, he also explained that Germany already supports U.S. forces with aerial refueling and reconnaissance aircraft. Although Mass hinted at the likelihood that Germany would provide more support once the U.S. drawdown takes effect. He provided no details, noting that the mandate for Germany's efforts must be renewed by the German parliament in October. So he didn't say anything about um, what, it was gonna, what they were going to do necessarily, but that they, when the U.S. draws down, will be there to fill the void. Der Spiegel reported on Thursday in an article entitled Germany Tornadoes are to secure a protection zone in northern Syria, quote, that Berlin had been holding secret talks with Washington and had signaled to the U.S. it would be prepared to participate militarily in securing the protection zone. Apparently, the U.S., as it says, first asked Germany to contribute to maintaining this zone at the Munich Security Conference in, in February. We talked about this. We talked about as soon as the United States saying that they wanted to draw down forces, what the result would be. And if Europe wanted to get more involved in Syria, here's the, the grand doorway to do that, it'd be easy. We just You just replace the United States. You don't really have to come up with a huge strategy necessarily. You, don't, you already have the trained fighters on the ground in the Kurds. And all you have to do is come in and replace the United States with this pretty small contingent. But you could be in control of eastern Syria. And that did um, prick the ears of Germany. Uh, continuing here, Pompeo also explained that U.S. Department of Defense and Germany's Ministry of Defense will be engaged, quoting now, to figure out exactly what the right nature of those forces uh, will need to look like here in eastern Syria. Then um, the Kurdish 24 says this, Kurdistan 24 says this, Germany thus becomes the first European country to publicly express its willingness to participate in maintaining the security zone. First, first one from Europe to openly say, yes, we're ready to participate. Again, it will still require Parliament to approve it. But it is interesting. You're, as it says at the end here, European countries, including Germany, have a strong interest in, in the stability in Syria, the civil war there, as well as the deportation. Uh, depredations of the Islamic State have created major problems for parties inside uh, Germany, as it's saying, and the influx of refugees generated by these conf conflicts has contributed to moving European politics to the right. 
Populist movements have also been on the rise. Anyhow, the point here is to show that Germany has come out and said vocally for the first time that it is ready to up its contribution in Syria, in eastern Syria, to maintain these safe zones. And Bible prophecy says, by the end of this Syrian civil war, Germany is going to be one of the dominant, if not the dominant force inside Syria at the expense of Iran. Now, the Bible doesn't really talk about what Russia is doing, is going, is going to happen to Russia inside Syria, uh, and the relationship between Germany and Russia. Although we have seen relationships between Germany and Russia be extremely pragmatic uh, in history. And to expect some type of deal over Syria between Germany and Russia isn't far-fetched at all, considering uh, other biblical prophecies. Anyhow, that's all I wanted to cover related to that. We're going to write uh, this up, of course, for Watch Jerusalem and talk about uh, the importance and why why we just latch on to these words from the German foreign minister here saying that they're going to increase their presence in Syria. Because again, it is something we have been watching for for eight years since the civil war began. Germany to finally get more involved in that, in in that arena, because that's what Bible prophecy says must happen. We're going to take a short break now. When the program continues, you won't be hearing from me, but you'll be hearing from Christopher Reams discuss the miracles that took place back in 1967 that allowed Israel to fully capture the old city of Jerusalem and also the other territories in the Six-Day War. Again, today is Jerusalem, the 52nd anniversary of the victory of taking the Temple Mount and the rest of Jerusalem from the Jordanians. And so please stay around to listen to that. But for me, thanks very much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week. This is Watch Jerusalem, where history and prophecy come alive. Thank you for listening. About a week and a half ago, Israel celebrated 50 years of Jerusalem, reunited as part of Israel after the Six-Day War. Now, this day may have caught a number of us English-speaking people by surprise, considering the difference in our calendars, going by our Gregorian calendar rather than the Hebrew calendar. This Monday marks 50 years from the beginning of the Six-Day War and the subsequent reunification of Jerusalem. Now, if you're perhaps hearing a, a recording of this radio program, that would be last, probably last Monday for you. Uh, Now, we managed to post my article on the Six-Day War just in time for the official Hebrew commemorations of Jerusalem Day a week and a half ago again. Now, I know we are just over a week on from that, but seeing as I have control of this program today and Monday marks 50 years from the Six-Day War on the Gregorian calendar here in the United States, I thought we might as well go through a few excerpts from this article on the Six-Day War. You can find this article entitled Miracles in Six Days still on the front page of our website Watch Jerusalem. Essentially, the article goes through a reminder of just how astounding this short war was. We're already 50 years on from the fact. Memories do fade. 
Uh, so it's important to be reminded of just what a game-changing, miraculous war this was. There's simply no logical ex- explanation for some of these incredible stories that happened during this war. And this article discusses just some of them. Now, of course, Israel was pushed to the brink uh, just before this war by surrounding Arab nations. There were many signs for impending war. There were mass movements of Arab artillery. An Arab truce agreement was signed. A major sea lane was blocked off, leading to Israel. So early on in the morning on June 5th, 1967, Nearly 200 Israeli airplanes took to the sky, making their way toward Egypt. Now, Jordan ended up picking up these Israeli air movements by radar, and so the Jordanians forwarded a coded warning to Egypt. In a miraculous stroke, however, the the Egyptians had changed their message coding equipment without notifying the Jordanians. So as such, the Israeli planes were able to knock out right away more than 300 Egyptian aircraft. So that was more than half the Egyptian air force in only three hours. Now, for some reason, no order was given for the Egyptian anti-aircraft missile batteries to retaliate. And so by the end of that initial day, two-thirds of the Syrian air force had also been destroyed more than half of the, uh, well, more, most of the Egyptian air force had been destroyed, and most of the Royal Jordanian air force had been destroyed. So you've got these three powerful nations, and most of the their, each of their air forces have been destroyed within one day. This was a truly incredible feat. Now the unusually one-sided results of the war kept coming like something straight out of the biblical stories of the Israelite army. For the Arab alliance, things just kept getting worse and worse. Rank, ineptitude, and disorder reigned. The uh, Israeli desert troops made their way into the Sinai Peninsula, readying an attack on the well-armed Qasima military outpost. Massive explosions were heard within the base as they approached, and by the time the Israelis arrived, they found the Egyptians had already destroyed their own equipment and fled. Egypt had similarly abandoned other military bases as well. The Arab alliance tried to sell to their people the propaganda that the reason for these catastrophic losses must be because the Americans and British were helping the Israelis. Now, this tune didn't last for too long, uh, as there there was the case of the King Hussein of Jordan actually finally pleading with Britain to join them in fighting against Israel uh, after Jordan had so readily accused the nation of Britain of helping the Israelis. Finally, they decided to reach out to Britain and ask for their help in the war. And the war continued on, and the war miracles just kept on coming. The Golan Heights was a well-fortified Syrian front in the Six-Day War. Israeli commander Musa Klein stationed in the Heights. He had only 25 men left in his platoon after fierce fighting, and as he approached a Syrian position, he ordered it to be charged upon by his few men, 
unaware that it was one of the strongest Syrian positions in the heights. It was rigged with an impressive array of machine guns, mortars, and bunkers. The, the Syrians were ordered not to fire until the Israelis had arrived at point-blank range just in front of the doubled row of the trench wire there. But the Syrians waited too long, and all of a sudden, a cry of Arabic ran out, the Jews are already inside, and we've taken heavy casualties. The Israeli commander's attack had been an outstanding success. The Israelis had been expecting a fierce and bloody battle there on the Golan Heights, as the Arab bunkers were impervious to conventional airstrikes, But, however, by June 10th, before many of the enemy positions had even been set upon by the Israelis, just as had happened in the Sinai Peninsula, the Syrians had left their weapons and fled their positions in a state of panic. Now, there was a reservist Israeli cab driver who tells his story of the conflict. He and another reservist were on patrol near the Tehran Straits, Uh, down there in the south of Israel. And all of a sudden, the two men, armed with light weapons, met with an Egyptian half-track. And this half-track was filled with Egyptian soldiers and mounted with machine guns. Death for these two Israelis seemed imminent. All the Israeli men could do, really, was point their inferior weapons at the enemy and wait to be mowed down. The cab driver described... The events that unfolded, this is related via the Israeli website Eretz Sheva. Quote, the half-track came to a halt and we decided to cautiously approach it. We found 18 armed soldiers sitting inside with guns in hand with a petrified look on their faces. They looked at us with great fear as though begging for mercy. I shouted, hands up! As we were marching them and I had returned to a state of calm... I asked the Egyptian sergeant next to me, tell me, why didn't you shoot at us? He answered, I don't know. My arms froze. They became paralyzed. My whole body was paralyzed and I don't know why. Now that's just one of these remarkable stories that came out from the war. And uh, there's also another story of an Israeli Defense Forces IDF vehicle heavily laden with highly explosive equipment which had been parked in Jerusalem on a delivery to resupply ammunition to the Israeli soldiers. Now, if the vehicle had been hit by the ongoing Arab shelling that was happening, the ensuing explosion would have destroyed surely several nearby buildings and potentially ended numerous lives. Now, in fact, this vehicle, laden with explosives, was directly hit by an Arab shell. But the shell didn't explode. It merely landed harmlessly atop the Israeli shells stacked inside the vehicle. Now, these are just some of the miracles that happened during this war. You can read more elsewhere about them. But here's some statistics for you from the aftermath of this war. For every Israeli who perished in the Six-Day War, 25 of the enemy died. For every Israeli prisoner of war, there were over 394 Arab prisoners of war. That's one Israeli prisoner of war to 394 Arabs. For every Israeli plane that was downed, more than 11 Arab planes were lost. 
So that's one little Middle Eastern nation, Israel, against four giant aggressors. And all of this, all of these uh, occurrences here during this war happened in only six days. The things that happened on the Six-Day War certainly can't be regarded as blind luck. They, They are surely a testament to the power and intervention of a higher power of the great God, Israel indeed won a miraculous war, the sort that you do read about in the Bible, and prayers had been incessantly offered up by Jews in Israel and around the world for deliverance from the might of the Arab invaders. After the war on Shavuot, or Pentecost, as it's often called in the English language, on on that holiday, hundreds of thousands of Jews arrived in the recently recaptured city at that time recently recaptured, of Jerusalem, offering up prayers of thanks to God for his miraculous delivery from the jaws of the Arab armies. Now, of course, we're right around that Shavuot or Pentecost season right now. Now, many dismiss God and his miracles of the Bible as having never happened, and still others will accept as perhaps proven many parts of the biblical record, but believe that the day of miracles is now over, is finished, that God doesn't intervene in world affairs like he once did. Is this really the case? Have we seen the last of the great biblical miracles? Well, the conflict, the six-day war conflict, already 50 years on, speaks for itself. And again, you can read more about this on our front page at Watch Jerusalem. It should be on the front page for a while longer. Uh, You might have to scroll down some to get to it. Well, that concludes it for me. Hope you've enjoyed today's program. Have a great week and be sure to tune in next time.